In the spring, a fuller crimson comes upon the robin's breast. In the spring, the wanton lapwing gets himself another crest. In the spring, a livelier iris changes on the burnished dove. In the spring, a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. Yes, it's spring again. A time for anticipation, for rebirth, and for your pet to molt its fur all over the sofa. And just coming round from their winter slumbers, gathered with me around our equinoctial microphone are Christine Buckley. Hello. Evelyn Brock. Hello. And Barney Burnham. Hello. Oh, to be in England now that April's there... And whoever wakes in England sees some morning, unaware, that the lowest boughs and the brushwood sheaf round the elm tree bowl are in tiny leaf, while the chaffinch sings on the orchard bough in England now. And after April, when May follows, and the whitethroat builds and all the swallows, hark, where my blossomed pear tree in the hedge leans to the field and scatters on the clover blossoms and dewdrops at the bent spray's edge. That's the wise thrush. He sings each song twice over, lest you should think he never could recapture the first fine, careless rapture. And though the fields look rough with hoary dew, all will be gay when noontide wakes anew the buttercups the little children's dower far brighter than this gaudy melon flower. Robert Browning's Home Thoughts from Abroad. Thank you, Christine. So, what is the derivation of the word April? To answer that question, we need to go back to ancient Rome. The Feisti Prinestini is an ancient Roman calendar carved in marble, or at least the remains of it. Only parts of January, March, April and December survive, but it has left a tantalising clue to the origins of the name of this month. The Roman month, Aprilis, is derived from the Latin aprire, which means to open, and the Feisti gives us an idea why. Fruits and flowers and animals and lands and seas do open this month, it says. April the 1st is, of course, All Fool's Day, a day on which often very elaborate hoaxes and tricks are played to make people look foolish or credulous. But according to tradition, pranking must end at 12 noon. After that, the tables are turned and the pranksters themselves are April Fool's. Although many countries have their own versions of April Fool's Day, the origin of the custom remains a mystery. Some historians have linked it to festivals such as Hilaria, Latin for joyful, which was celebrated in ancient Rome at the end of March by followers of the cult of Sibylle. It involved people dressing up in disguises and mocking fellow citizens and even magistrates. 
There's also speculation that April Fool's Day was tied to the vernal equinox, or first day of spring in the Northern Hemisphere, when Mother Nature fooled people with changing, unpredictable weather. In her book, Toxvig's Almanac, the comedian and writer Sandy Toxvig comes up with her own suggestion. Fool, from the Latin follis, means bellow or windbag, referring to an empty-headed person. April is the time when the sharp spring winds, known as the Asinines, blow across Europe, and it was believed that the draught could get in anyone's head and empty them of reason. As it could happen to anyone, a day was set aside to celebrate all foolishness. Believe me, you shouldn't. I totally made it up. Fooled you. The truth is, we don't know exactly why April the 1st is the big day for gagsters, so I won't waste your time. The first British reference is in 1686, when the antiquarian John Aubrey referred to the celebration as Fool's Holy Day. And on the 1st of April 1698, several people were tricked into going to the Tower of London to see the lions washed. With the development of television and social media, hoaxes have become more elaborate, and even the venerable BBC got in on the act. On April 1st, 1957, Panorama broadcast a three-minute segment about a bumper spaghetti harvest in southern Switzerland. The success of the crop was attributed both to an unusually mild winter and to the virtual disappearance of the spaghetti weevil. The audience heard Richard Dimbleby, one of the BBC's most highly respected reporters, discussing the details of the spaghetti crop as they watched film footage of a Swiss family pulling pasta off spaghetti trees and placing it into baskets. It was a panorama cameraman, Charles de Jaeger, who came up with the idea for the hoax. De Jaeger was born in Vienna, and it grew out of a remark one of his Viennese school teachers often made to his class. Boys, you're so stupid you'd believe me if I told you that spaghetti grows on trees. As an adult, it occurred to de Jaeger that it would be funny to turn this remark into a visual joke for April Fool's Day. He became quite obsessed with the idea, trying a number of times to sell it to different bosses. But it was only in 1957, while he was working for Panorama, that he found some willing accomplices. The segment concluded with the assurance that, for those who love this dish, there's nothing like real homegrown spaghetti. The Swiss spaghetti harvest hoax generated an enormous response. Hundreds of people phoned the BBC wanting to know how they could grow their own spaghetti tree. To this query, the BBC diplomatically replied, Place a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. Some years later, BBC Radio 2 got in on the act. British astronomer and broadcaster Sir Patrick Moore was, like Richard Dimbleby, a very reliable man. One reporter commented at the time that if he said there was cheese on the moon, we would all ask, what kind? But even he was not averse to a light-hearted leg pull. On the 1st of April, 1976, he gave a broadcast about what he called the Jovian-Plutonian gravitational effect. He declared that the unique alignment on that day of two planets, Jupiter and Pluto, 
would exert a stronger tidal force than usual. This would momentarily counteract Earth's own gravity and make people weigh less and indeed pull them skywards. We all like precision from science and he announced that this would occur at exactly 9.47am that day. Sir Patrick's advice to anyone listening was to jump in the air at that time, which would result in them experiencing a strange floating sensation. At the appointed moment, Moore shouted, Jump now! The BBC switchboard lit up with dozens of listeners phoning to say the experiment was a triumph. One woman declared she and a large group of friends on the table they were sitting at were wafted aloft and orbited gently round the room. Of course, there was always a grumpy participant. One man rang furious because he'd risen upwards so rapidly that he'd hit his head on the ceiling. It was a joke that merely underlined how little most of us know about science. Pluto is what's known as a dwarf planet. It's so small that it could align with Jupiter into infinity and never have any effect on that giant whatsoever. Adele Stripe is a northern lass, born in Tadcaster in North Yorkshire. She wrote this April poem, First Milk, Evelyn. Today I carried a newborn lamb, hung by his hooves, over the farm gate, into the deep straw manger I had made. And there I made my first mistake. I named him. Hello, Waldorf, I whispered, and sprayed blue paint on his wet woolly back still steaming in the cold March air. In the next makeshift bed, pallets were bound with old twine rope. Nets of hay hung from a rust hook, and Waldorf's mother bleated for him. I crept up behind the ewe, rolled her on her back, and pulled up the sore, swollen teats until they fired hot, savage spurts of colostrum into my Pyrex jar. With my plastic syringe, I dribbled the first milk onto my wrist and gripped Waldorf between my legs, headlocking him, until he gagged from my surrogate pipe. I wrapped him up in a muddy blanket, dripped iodine onto his umbilical cord, held him close, my triplet runt, and pretended my heartbeat would send him to sleep. Newborn lambs are not the only sign that spring is here. For James Common, it's the chiff-chaff. Christine. Spring, a time of transformation. It is now that skeins of wild geese and winter widgeon yield the skies to a myriad springtime migrants. For many people, the conspicuous sign of the changing season. Countless nature lovers wait for the first swallow, cuckoo or lark. 
but lost and ignored amid the brighter, more alluring sedge warblers and sandwich terns, one of my favourite songbirds makes its triumphant return to our shores. The chiffchaff, a bird that embraces the very spirit of spring. For me, spring commences with the first chiffchaff and its first song, often voiced from high in the canopy, the bird obscured behind a veil of fresh green leaves. The chiffchaff does not showcase the lyrical genius of the nightingale, nor does it boast the imitative skill of the marsh warbler. But the repetitive chiffchaff, chiffchaff evokes bursting buds, frog spawn, daffodils, lengthier days and warmer nights. It's a characteristic and charming tune, interrupted only by a sporadic wheat as the bird skips energetically from branch to branch. Due to its broad habit tolerance, the chiffchaff is often the first returning songster to be noted, arriving in late March before many other species. It is a versatile breeding bird. Unlike other spring migrants, such as the altitude-addicted ring oozel or pernickety windchat, the chiffchaff is unfussy and adaptive, happy with coastal thickets, conifer plantations, parks, gardens, deciduous woodlands and mature hedgerows alike. There truly is a lot more to this feisty and deering bird than meets the eye. Where others might see a rather dull and vocally maladroit visitor, I see beauty and brilliance in equal measure, combined with unusual bravery for a bird no bigger than a blue tit. I encourage everyone to appreciate the chiffchaff for what it is, a seasonal sensation. With the slightly warmer spring weather, our fancies may turn not only to love, but maybe to holidays. But beware. Barney. What did me in the holidays, Alan Corrin? To all the thousands of you reading this in plaster, in traction and in bitter self-reproach, you have my deepest sympathy. Particularly as you have just come back, or rather been brought back, from your first big holiday break of the season. Many of you indeed are limping on that break. A lousy pun, I agree, but I shan't be deploying any really classy puns today, since the last thing I want is to have you in more stitches than you already are. I know all this because I've seen the Rosper report stating that holiday injuries are increasing exponentially year on year, but only partly because people are annually taking even more adventurous trips. While it is to be expected that those engaged in whitewater bungee jumping or carrying an alligator up the north face of the Eiger may encounter a twinge or two, my concern is for the vast majority of holidaymakers who, according to Rosper, hurt themselves by taking minor exercise to which they are not accustomed and for which they have not prepared. Since Rosper therefore advocates basic pre-holiday training, let me offer a few tips. Pack your case a month before you leave and practice throwing it into the boot of your car every day so that when your Bulgarian mini jalopy driver turns up to take you to Heathrow and stares at you while you lug your case out, your shoulder will be up to the task of chucking it on top of his filthy spare wheel. This exercise will also strengthen muscles required later, when you have to get your hand luggage into the overhead locker without cabin crew giggling at the new dent in your head. You would also be wise to suss out the route to Heathrow. 
Several percent of all holiday cardiac arrests occur when a Bulgarian with a conked-out sat-nav arrives in Slough at the moment your plane is passing overhead. If you do get there on time, remember that you'll have to stand on one leg to take your shoes off for the security joker. Practice this at home for as long as it takes, or risk falling against the thing rolling your jacket through X-ray. Also, train yourself to bend, so that when all your knick-knacks fall out of what has become your full metal jacket, and you try to collect them from under the rolling thing where they have themselves rolled, you can stand up again. Flying is painful enough without doing it on all fours. You'll find that a few months' hearty jogging will prepare you for what happens next, because nothing happens next. Much of your flight will be carried out on foot, since not only is your gate several kilometres away, but Parche Omar Khayyam, the moving walkway having quit moves not. And do be sure your marathon training was conducted while towing a wheeled bag under total control. A holiday wound is bad enough when you sustain it, but when someone else sustains it through your culpable ineptitude, an arm and a leg could cost you an arm and a leg, because there's no such thing as a good trip. And talking of holidays, what more romantic spot to visit in the springtime than Paris? Stephen Pyle's book of heroic failures, however, describes the experience of 32 ladies from Coventry who, looking for an exciting way to spend a weekend, decided to pop over to that city. But such were the delays and disasters encountered on the way that they arrived in the French capital with only two hours to spare before they were due to go back home. One of their number, Mrs Kathleen Fox, said... It was ridiculous. We spent all weekend travelling. After eight hours on the boat and 15 hours on the coach, they got out to find that they were still 80 miles from Paris. They booked into a hotel in Compiègne, where they had to rest three to a room. Then a cat wet the bed, said one of the women, and we were six to a room. When they eventually got to Paris, they found the courier couldn't speak French. After a quick look round, they set off home. They called at the same hotel, where the same cat wet the bed again, and also ate their chicken lunch before they got there. Things might have been slightly better had the courier brought a phrase book with him. But you can't rely completely even on those. Barney. In 1853, Pedro Carolino wrote an English-Portuguese phrasebook, despite having little or no command of the English language. His greatly recommended book, The New Guide of the Conversation in Portuguese and English, has now been reprinted under the title English as She is Spoke. After a brief dedication, we expect then who the little book for the care what we wrote him and for her typographical correction that may be worth the acceptation of the studious persons and especially of the youth at which we dedicate him particularly. Carolino kicks off with some familiar phrases which the Portuguese holidaymakers might find useful. Among these are... She made the prude. This hat go well. He eat two coaches. Exculpate me by your brothers. A take is better than two you shall have. He has tossed his all good. 
Do you cut the hairs? He then moves on to familiar dialogues, which include for to wash the good morning and for to visit a sick. Dialogue 18, for to ride a horse, begins, here is a horse who have bad looks. Give me another, I will not that. He not know too much, he is Percy, he is foundered. Don't you are ashamed to give me a jade as like. He is unshoed. He is with nails up. In the section on anecdotes, Carolina offers the following guarantee to enthrall any listener. One eye was laid against a man which had good eyes that he saw better than him. The party was accepted. I had gain over said the one-eyed, why I see you two eyes, and you not look me who won. It is difficult to top that, but Carolino manages it in a useful section of idiotisms and proverbs. These include... Nothing some money, nothing of Swiss. The stone as roll, not heap up, not foam. And the well-known expression... The dog than bark... Not bite. Carolino's particular genius was aided by the fact that he did not possess an English to Portuguese dictionary. However, he did possess Portuguese to French and French to English dictionaries, through both of which he dragged his original expressions. The results yield language of originality and great beauty. Is there anything in conventional English which could equal the vividness of? to crunch a marmoset. Well, I don't know if children's author Piers Torday has ever crunched a marmoset, but he certainly cares for hares. Christine. One animal that enjoys both solitude and spring is the brown hare. They can be seen in late March and early April sprinting after one another over the fields before standing upright on their long hind legs to take swipes at each other with their paws, as if they were humans having a boxing match. It's this phenomenon, of course, which gave rise to the phrase mad as a March hare, which you may recognise from Alice in Wonderland. The mad hare is in fact a love-obsessed buck who bounds after his beloved doe and gets punched on the nose for his trouble. But these bats are not as mad as they look. Does tend to be larger than the bucks, and so by testing their suitors for strength and speed, they work out who will be a strong and healthy mate for them to start a family with. About six weeks after they have mated, tiny leverets appear. Doe hares are unusual mammals in that they can become pregnant whilst already pregnant, a rare process known as superfetation. Once she has had her litter, typically around two leverets at a time, a doe will groom and feed her young for a few weeks, sometimes carrying a leveret around in her mouth like a cat with a kitten, before leaving them to fend for themselves. After that, hares tend to be solitary creatures. Unlike rabbits, hares have no permanent burrow. They dig shallow ditches in the ground to sleep in, called forms, in which they spend much of the day before emerging to consume vast quantities of food at dusk. Brown hares were brought to Britain during the Iron Age, and although originally revered as godlike, the modern Easter bunny derives from the hare-headed Anglo-Saxon goddess Oystra, 
and her white pet hair. They have also long been hunted for food. So they are not only wary of humans, but practised at fleeing from them. They can run twice as quickly as the fastest human on Earth, thanks to their huge, powerful engine of a heart and long, muscular hind legs. Speed is not a hare's only defence. They also confuse their predators by jinking, sudden breakneck zigzagging turns. Perhaps it was this combination of speed and craftiness which gave rise to the folk tales told all over these islands in which witches transformed into witch hares at night, accused of stealing milk from cows and nibbling saplings in orchards, among other crimes. Who can say, but there is certainly something magical about these elusive creatures who have been spotted at night or arranged in a circle and cast in silhouette by the milky light of a full April hair moon, lost in silent parliament with one another for reasons that are as yet beyond our comprehension. If you go down to the woods today, you might discover something as surprising as that which Chris Mal discovered in South Wales. Evelyn. It was a real-life Indiana Jones moment, recalls the usually unflappable Welsh woodsman Chris Mal, who works for the Woodland Trust. I was clearing debris from a wood in the Swansea Valley and lifted a corrugated sheet. The sight was a shock. I had disturbed 16 adult grass snakes, which at once began to slip and twist in a mass of hissing bodies and flickering tongues. Each was about a metre long, but I had no idea where they ended or began. They were just this palpitating ball of serpentine string. I'm not remotely phobic, but it made me shiver. Chris looks after more than 30 woods across South Wales and stresses that it's mostly a treat to spy a grass snake or at least the tail end disappearing into the undergrowth. They're harmless, of course, he grins, and they've usually spotted me first. Just six species of reptile are native to the UK, and two of them, the sand lizard and smooth snake, are now seriously scarce, sticking almost exclusively to sandy headlands in southern England. The remaining four hunt along woodland edges Britain-wide, though they also need scrubby pasture, banks to bask on, and proximity to water. The grass snake is the largest at one metre, an amphibious beast prone to spooking unsuspecting ramblers. The secretive adder is half the size, growing to around 60 centimetres, while the dusk-loving slow worm is a bit smaller at half a metre, and the common lizard now a rarity despite its name, is just 15 centimetres or so from nose to tail. One leapt on my litter picker at Coed Mice Melon only last weekend, continued Chris. She made barely a flicker. It was like seeing the grass move. 
Coid Mysmelin's reptile-rich Eden cloaks 16 hectares of Drumai Mountain. Bilberry and heather cling to the steeper slopes, giving way to oak, ash and bluebell as the wood tips down into the Valley of Neath. Rocky outcrops and gorse offer five-star hibernation when its scaly residents go into their annual winter lockdown. We've opened up the wood's grasslands and glades and introduced white Welsh cattle to graze the sward, Chris explains. The scrub cutting and coppicing are snake friendly, varying the hedges and edges and because reptiles are essentially solar powered, needing heat to breathe, digest food and ripen their sperm, we've created plenty of south-facing sun traps. The habitat medley also means prey is abundant. The snakes take toads, frogs, mice and voles, while lizards love grasshoppers and spiders. But predation is a two-way street. I've sometimes seen grass snakes or slow worms unfurling in mid-air as they dangle from a buzzard's beak, continued Chris. I've heard tell of snakes in treetops too. Raptors settle there to feast in peace, leaving carcass-munching fungi to make short work of the leftovers. Those nutrients are then reabsorbed by the tree, so it's good news all round, though not for the snake. Reptiles have a cornucopia of tricks to avoid being lunch. Lizards and slowworms can drop their still twitching tails, while grass snakes play dead, lolling mouth agape, until the threat has passed. If that fails, the assailants can expect a squirt of foul-smelling fluid straight from the posterior. Making your garden reptile-friendly is pretty simple, according to ace herpetologist Nigel Hand. A pond is ideal, along with patches of nettle or bramble that escape the mower's notice. Lizards love log piles they can hide in and bask on, especially as dead wood tends to be full of tasty invertebrates. I lay tree and grass cuttings along my border, as well as heat-absorbing stuff like corrugated tin. It may look unsightly, but it's worth it for a sinuous glimpse of coppery grey. My wife was minded to object, but luckily slowworms are notorious slug guzzlers, so they earn their keep. Encouraging not reptiles but insects and birds into our gardens is something that Mike Lane is passionate about, as we discovered in the last episode of Growing Sense. What, I wonder, does he have in store for us this month? Good morning, Vonya. Good morning, Mike. And what are we going to talk about this morning? Right, so let's talk about seeds generally 
So what sort of seeds are you thinking of the plant of buying this year? Well, I'm planning to do um, sunflowers again, to grow right. sunflowers, because I was quite successful with those last year. And some vegetables, I, I love it, to be able to go in the garden and pick peas or beans. Yeah. Uh, I just think the flavour is so much better than getting yeah. them from the supermarket. I, I, I tend to agree. Um, possibly planting things in modules or into individual pots. In yes, yes. Uh, there's also alternatives nowadays to, to actually growing with something called um, a seed tape. It's a fascinating um, idea, to be honest. Uh, all the seeds are spread out along a piece of tape. So what you can do, you can clear an area ready to say for your carrots or for your, your beans, and then you can just literally just roll the tape out <laughs> that sounds perfect so just to explain i clear the area i lay the tape down um do i need to water it or cover it or anything cover it slightly with some soil mm -hmm. and then water it uh, and then just leave it um, the advantage with doing this is is then then you know where where, where the plants are yes uh, so hopefully you can weed in between them yeah. so when they yeah. start growing up then, then obviously you can run your hands through and you can feel the beans or the carrots coming through uh, and know where they are compared to the weeds it sounds a really good idea mike certain seeds at the moment seem to be on on the ball for doing that i've oh. noticed um and they are available in certain garden centers uh, but it's a bit hit and miss the way where you can find it. Perhaps online so is online the way to go. Online is probably the way yeah. forward. Oh, I'll have yeah. a look at that. Thank you. So, Mike, my lawn is very patchy. Can you give me any suggestions to uh, spruce it up ready for summer? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of moss um, <laughs> in, 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 in the lawn. Um, the grass itself doesn't look particularly strong. Um, straight away, we could uh, even stick some weed and feed uh, and, a, and a moss killer over the lawn it gives us an option then of possibly giving it a rake or even a scarify later on which will actually just remove remove the moss um, and how to help encourage the roots uh, and then after that we could even just go over the top and reseed it um, so how do i do that just sprinkle it wherever it's needed uh yes more or less um, if you if you get a, a a metal a metal rake and sort of scuff up the area and then just basically put put the seeds on top and i would just leave, leave the seeds on top i mean some people say cover them up i would but personally i just water it uh keep it keep it moist within about a week to 10 days the new growth should should start growing brilliant and what sort of month is the best month to do it because i think the soil or the ground needs to be a bit, warm, a bit warmer warm, doesn't it yeah it's oh. I, I personally think a lot of the science of the best time of the year when and when not to do it. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've put grass seed down in January oh. and it's, it's, it's come up. Maybe avoid August, okay. August very July, hot, yeah. very hot, yeah. lots of water and potentially, mm -hmm. uh, and possibly then, then look at early September through to October. Lovely. Thank you. That's, that's a good yeah. side. Now tell me, Mike, what's all this about... Bee Day. Oh, Bee Day, World Bee Day on the 20th of May. Um, yes, this is a fantastic uh, project actually from our friends in Slovenia. Um, it's kind of to celebrate uh, a chap called Anton Jannes, Anton Jannes, uh, who was the pioneer of beekeeping, who was born in 1734. 
they came up, came up with this idea that we really need to start celebrating bees and also any other sort of insects which are pollinating because we kind of forget about the work which the bees and insects do uh, in, in our food chain. Oh, yes. A couple of facts. Um, one in three mouthfuls is down to a bee. So, uh, so we're talking about vegetables vegetables here. Yeah. And, and all sorts of and things seeds and, and seeds things. Yeah. Yep. nuts um, yeah there's 25,000 different types of bee are they really? and also not all bees actually sting oh. the trade of thought is to try to start to understand bees so this so is this is a, a general awareness day then isn't ge- it? yes yeah. yep. a general awareness day uh, so I like to celebrate the importance of the bee <laughs> I have to get my bee outfit ready. Your bee out- exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike, for all this fantastic information. And I just so love hearing about this bee day. That's fine. I suppose I should uh, really buzz off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll just leave it there. So uh, let's say goodbye, I think. I'll be off too. <laughs> Cheerio, Cheerio next time. Cheers and bye. Bye. The poet Pam Ayers is an outdoor lover, and when she's not pottering around in her garden, she is drawn to other outdoor pursuits. Christine. Now and then, as I toil along motorways or shoot through the countryside in a packed train, I look out and catch a glimpse of a canal. Just for a second, I see a winding waterway of exactly the right width and the pleasing curves of a little white bridge. There might be a lockkeeper's picturesque house, the garden bright with flowers and massive black and white timber lock gates set in mown grass. Everywhere there would be smartly painted narrowboats moored companionably nose to tail or bustling off to some enticing and beautiful waterway pub. I always view these scenes with regret and a sense of loss. They seem to say, look how lovely we are, and yet you never come near us, you never even look twice. I want to protest. I do. I will. One day I'll get out of this stale, suffocating train and I'll sail down that cool green water. I'll slip under the darling bridge and those descending branches will envelop me. I'll be all by myself in the glorious silence and the only company will be swans and otters and coots. I'll be gone, just swallowed up into that mesmerising beauty and vanish. One day, I finally had the chance of a holiday on the Kennet and Avon Canal. When I excitedly told my best friend, her response was meagre and dampening. She said she had boarded a narrowboat with her husband and two children for a similar holiday. They'd set off in high spirits. After they'd travelled slowly in the rain for the entire morning, the offspring became bored. Having raked over and consumed most of the food, they now squabbled and complained about the slow list of the journey. Husband and wife fell out. My friend called up a taxi on her mobile, got off at the next bridge, and with a sharp, bubble this for a lark, went home and left them to it. I was sure my own holiday would be serene and harmonious, but an unwelcome seed of doubt had been sown. On the day of the trip, my husband and I turned up at the wharf in Devizes with a remarkable amount of baggage, two sons and a black dog. 
From the wharf shop, we bought canal maps, information on waterways etiquette and pamphlets on the wildlife we might glimpse on our travels. I was startled to see goldfishes and terrapins listed. Apparently people get fed up with keeping them as pets and dump them in the canal. This is not a good idea. Our narrow boat seemed very large and not in the first flush of youth. My husband had never skippered this or any other craft before. We were given a fairly perfunctory account of its workings and then set off in glorious sunshine. All seemed well until another boat appeared coming towards us. My husband blanched. He said, it's like driving a cricket pitch. And as the approaching craft neared, he muttered through ashen lips, I hope that bloke knows how to avoid me because I'm sure as hell I don't know how to avoid him. A desperate silence descended on our vessel as the gap between us closed and we steeled ourselves for the splintering of wood and cries of anguish. The two craft glided silently past each other. In due course, a fragile confidence developed, but this evaporated when we saw our first lock. Locks are very dark and frightening. One of your party goes without conviction to the lock mechanism and turns it the wrong way. After numerous failures, the great black doors yawn open and you sail forwards as if into a trap. The doors close, the water level drops, you lose sight of the sunny banks and descend into the pit. Shaggy, streaming black walls loom over you like those of a tomb or foul dungeon. Curious faces peer down from the rim. For those onlookers, you pathetically try to look seasoned and confident. The descent ceases and suddenly the black doors part. Relief floods in and the sunlit waterway stretches ahead. The ordeal is over and you sail out and away until the next one. Our dog Gemma came from a dog's home. She was anxious to please but unsure about sailing. Mortified at the prospect of jumping on and off the boat, she only did so after much loud encouragement and then in an eyes shut, well if I must, fashion, which meant she usually fell in. We had to keep fishing her out. Nervous and looking for reassurance, she took to creeping alongside our beds in the dead of night and upon finding any drooping human hands, set about them with great wet slapping licks. People were galvanised with terror and sat bolt upright in the cramped cabins, cracking their heads and fearing a serpent had risen up from the silt. I liked being on the canal, but did not enjoy the cooking. The fresh air gave my family voracious appetites. No sooner had I produced one meal and washed up awkwardly in the miniature sink than they were inquiring about the next. It was blazingly hot and conditions in the tiny kitchen became stifling and ratty. One evening I was cooking an intricate and complicated dish, a pan of sausages. There were too many for the small frying pan and they rose up the sides. I had to keep stirring them so that they all obtained a fleeting glimpse of the heat. It was boiling hot, poised about the spitting pan, but upon opening the little sliding window before me, I was blinded by a cloud of mosquitoes which swarmed in, fangs first, looking for blood. On we sailed with a chef swearing and swatting. After that night, we took to eating in pubs.
I also learned to do the narrow boat walk. The layout of many boats seemed to consist of a long corridor up the right-hand side with the little rooms giving off to the left. Therefore, the wall to your right becomes the curving ceiling over your head and if you are tall and walk normally, you scrape your shoulder and pulverise your skull. This calls for the narrowboat walk, whereby from the feet to the pelvis, the body faces forwards and from waist to neck, it turns sideways with the head turned to face forwards to see where you're going. It takes a bit of practice. Certainly, the trip awakened my latent resourcefulness. Our son James celebrated his birthday on the second day out. Having forgotten to bring sellotape, I fixed the jolly gift wrap around his present with dental floss. To make the birthday special, we had a secret plan. We would potter along the canal, not letting on that all had been set up in advance, and exclaim, Why, here's a cracking-looking village. Let's go and see if there's anywhere nice to eat. Amazingly, we would then happen upon an exquisite thatched inn, previously picked from a water pub guide, and upon entering, find a table set up with birthday balloons, cakes, etc. It was a grand plan to fill any fond parent's heart with anticipation. The only trouble was the slowness of the boat. The morning's leisurely pace quickened towards the afternoon. Conspiratorial smiles on parental faces froze as the hands of the clock spun. By tea time, we were flat out at four miles an hour, the breeze stirring my husband's hair as he urged the great lumbering oaf of a boat forward. Consulting the map, we found we were still miles from the village. Panic set in. We rang the pub at seven, eight, nine o'clock to say we were running late and only finally sprinted in, crazed with hunger, at ten o'clock. To the landlord's everlasting credit, even at that hour, the birthday supper was ready and welcoming. I learned that on the canals, you have to allow plenty of time for your journey. If you're happier just sitting by the canal bank with a good book, Phil Lee may have just the thing for you in this month's Talking Books. A double helping of raisins. I've gone for something a little different this time. Two novels significantly shortened and dramatised rather than simply read. These two stories introduce us to the first two novels by M.C. Beaton, who you may have heard of, and these are in the Agatha Raisin series. Beaton is also creator of Hamish Macbeth, a successful run of novels and a TV series about a police constable in the Highlands of Scotland. These two tales are set closer to home in Carsley, a small Cotswold village, though some of the action takes us to Evesham. Agatha Raisin is a sophisticated Londoner. She's just retired from running her own successful PR business in Mayfair and is looking for something in village life, although we do soon discover that peace and quiet is clearly not part of it. The first story, Agatha Raisin and the Quiche of Death, a cheesy pun, you'll agree, sees her settling in and attempting to become part of things by entering the Carsley Baking Competition. She won't win, as you'll discover, and the consequences will spread far and wide. There'll be murder, deception, a charity auction, the discovery of the true identity of the man with the monkey face mask who held up the village shop. The second story comes in two parts, with the overall title of Agatha Raisin and the Vicious Vet. 
in which Agatha's desire for a little romance was here caught up in more dastardly deeds with a new next-door neighbour, a retired colonel no less, and more danger from her incurable curiosity. Agatha is played by Penelope Keith and she steals the show, although there is an excellent cast of supporting actors. She's totally convincing in the role of the sharp, worldly woman who now wants to be part of a community, but nonetheless to retain her own quirky individuality. It is the end of an era, really. Uh, Mr Pedman tells me you'll all keep your old jobs. Of course, you'll be Pedman promotions, not Raisin promotions. Shame! Thank you, Roy. And uh, I wish you all good luck. As politicians get grubbier and pop stars tackier, your lies will have to be even bigger. But never forget the lady who taught you all to lie so beautifully. Both stories are a lot of fun and I really enjoyed the lightness of touch brought to them by the cast. They are contained in two discs which you'll find in good condition and the total running time is one hour and 45 minutes. Now listen on. To do so, let us know at Colin Chant's house and we will put the CD in your envelope as soon as it is available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to and however you're listening to it, I wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. Nothing is so beautiful as spring When weeds in wheels shoot long and lovely and lush Thrush's eggs look little low heavens And thrush through the echoing timber Does so rinse and wring the ear It strikes like lightnings to hear him sing the glassy pear tree leaves and blooms. They brush the descending blue. That blue is all in a rush with richness. The racing lambs, too, have fair their fling. What is all this juice and all this joy? A strain of the earth's sweet being in the beginning in Eden Garden. Have Get, before it cloy, before it cloud, Christ, Lord, and sour with sinning, innocent mind and mayday in girl and boy. Most, O maid's child, thy choice, and worthy the winning. Gerard Manley Hopkins' Spring. And with spring comes Easter. And with Easter come eggs. This month's audio playhouse story was written especially for Easter and focuses on a Cornish egg dating back 400 years. The Pen with Egg is a story of superstition and witchcraft, but also of love and hope. When's the train due? 12.25. We need to leave good and early in case the car doesn't start again. That reminds me, she'll bring her bike with her, I expect. We'll need to make room in... Oh, oh. you OK? Oh, not terrific, no. Do you want to stay here? Would you mind? It's no problem. 
I'll get some lunch together for us. You should take it easy, I keep telling you. Well, with no electricity, I won't be cooking anything. It'll only be salad. You'd better get off. You don't want to miss her. I don't think anyone can miss your sister, darling. About a year ago now, Endelin, my wacky sister, came to stay with me at our house in Cornwall for a couple of weeks. I wasn't well and my husband was going away on business, so Endelin took a break from her latest fad, study of the occult, to come and look after me. David! Endelin! And you did bring your bike. Here, let's give you a hand. Thanks. How, Susan? It doesn't get any better, but she puts a brave face on it. She'd have been here to meet you off the train, but... Can they really not do anything? They're doing what they can. Is she still going to the infirmary every month? No. They stopped that. Wasn't helping. Yet. She got an appointment with a specialist tomorrow morning, though, just before I leave. Maybe we'll know more then. What? Just thinking. So, what would this clinical trial entail exactly? Well, I'd have to stay in for a couple of days at the start, just to be sure there are no unexpected side effects. Then it's regular checkups, firstly on a weekly basis, then, well, see how it goes. And they think there really is a chance? They've been getting very promising results in Germany, he said. It's quite hopeful, really. Hold on a moment. What's going on over there? Don't know. Never seen the museum that busy before. Police cars? Hmm. If it is anything, it'll be on the local news tonight, I guess, if the power's back on. Anyway, they've blocked the road off, so we'll have to go round. I'll ring Endelin. Tell her we're going to be a bit delayed getting home. She'll be anxious to hear how we got on. If she's there, she said last night she might bike into town early. Oh, you didn't tell me? No, you were asleep. Oh, yes, sorry. I, I wasn't up to much yesterday, was I? You should have got her to come with us in the car this morning. What's she doing? Didn't say. Had a bit of a dark aura hanging around her, I thought. Ah, oh, one of those. Susan? How are you feeling? A bit rough. I think I did a bit too much today, what with the appointment this morning, and then David going off on his trip. Oh, damn. I've left it downstairs. That'll be him now, saying he's arrived. I'll fetch it. Thanks, Del. Oh, can you answer it so it doesn't go to voicemail? Hi, David. It's Lindellin. Sue left her phone downstairs. Yeah, not bad. Hold on, I'll hand you over. It's David. I'll leave you to it. David, how's everything? You get there OK? Yes, it all went fine. You all right? Sure, yes. Well, a bit tired, but... How's Indellin coping? Did the power come back on? Yes, it's been on since just before eight. How's the hotel? Well, I've only just got in. David, are you there? Damn. What is it? Oh, wretched phone cut off in the middle again. As soon as they get one thing fixed, it's something else. Still, at least they've got our electricity back on for us. 
Can you flick the box on? Might just catch the local news. There you go. Cheers. But there was only one thing stolen, the Penrith egg, which had been the focal exhibit ever since the museum opened nearly a hundred years ago. And tell him, come see this. say the theft occurred late last night or early this morning. The curator, Professor Marion Polkeris, said there was very little damage done other than to the glass display case in which the egg itself was kept. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Devon and Cornwall Police. What is it? There's been a burglary at the museum. We saw the police cars this morning. Someone's pinched our egg. Our egg? What, the Penwith egg? Who'd want to steal that? Even if it is 400 years old, surely it has no monetary value. Switch that off. Who do they think did it? Sorry, Sergeant. My husband's away on business just at the moment, but he'll be back on the 7th. Can I help at all? Well, I I don't know, Mrs Freer, but being as you live here at Penwith House, I thought I should come and talk to you both about your connection with the uh, Penwith egg. Yes, of course. Come through. Thank you. Are you interested in local history, Sergeant? And as far as it affects community, Mrs Freer, yes. I know the Penwith egg has a very long history. Professor Polkeros seemed very proud of it. Do you know the story? Which is? Yeah, back in the early 17th century, it's supposed to have been. Two local women, one who lived up on the coast near Tintagel, Morwen Morgan by name, and another called Susan Penwith, who lived here in this house. Right. Oh, thank you. Penwith, by the way, is my maiden name. The house has been in our family since 1500 and something. Now, the story goes that Susan Penwith resented the other woman's popularity. Morwen Morgan was what you'd call a good witch, because she went round curing people. On the other hand, Susan, my ancestor, she was into witchcraft too, but a less pleasant sort. She was a pretty nasty piece of work by all accounts, and the pair of them eventually had a sort of witch's duel here up behind the house on the hill. It seems that Susan, the bad witch, won. And the legend says she imprisoned Morwen's spirit in an egg, which had been laid, supposedly, by the devil himself. Tea? Oh, that, that's kind of you, Mr Frey, thank you. As it was her house, she hid the egg here. And there's some truth in that, because in 1907, my great-grandfather discovered it, hidden in that fireplace behind you. Mm-hmm. And he used it to found the Penwith Museum in town. It was its very first exhibit. It's only small no bigger than a goose egg, and very dark brown with some symbols scratched on it. Yes, I've seen the photographs. Can you think why anyone would take it? <laughs> Absolutely not. It doesn't look like much. Thank you. How did they break into the museum? Well, to be honest with you, Mrs Freer, I don't believe they did. What? Breaking, I mean. I mean the door didn't lock properly, you see, and... The alarm wasn't activated, and according to Mary Polkaris, the uh, curator, the CCTV wasn't working neither. Well, that's par for the course. For anything round here bearing the Penwith name, I blame Susan, the Black Witch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was that. That witch business didn't do our family any favours at all, according to the stories. 
Morphin Morgan's beneficial influence had been so strong in this area that everybody prospered. But as soon as Susan Penwith got rid of her, everything started going wrong, particularly for the Penwith family. Our crops failed, our livestock grew weak. Many of my ancestors died of mysterious illnesses. Nothing's been any good here, really, since the 1600s. All down to a, a neighbourhood feud? Has anybody been asking questions recently about the egg toll? No, never. Hardly anyone even knows it's there, was there, let alone our connection with it. Right. Oh, well, if you do hear anything... We'll let you know, of course. Thank you, Mrs. Free, for your time and the story. No problem. Oh, um... Uh, there have been no new arrivals in the area you know of? No, not as far as... We're pretty remote out here. Don't see many folk. Righto. Well, I'll be off then. Thanks for the tea. Uh, goodbye, Sergeant. Hello? Hello, darling. You OK? <sighs> What's the matter? I've, I've just had a letter from the clinic. They say they, they can't start the metaxophil trial until sometime next year at the earliest, if at all. What? <laughs> Due to staff shortages, it says here, and the recent restrictions on local practice finance. Oh, Susan, no. They talk about discussing options. We've been discussing options for the last six months. That trial was my final option. There must be some way. They're trialling metaxophil in Germany as well, don't forget. Perhaps we could enrol you in that. Do you think so? We can try. That article about it, it's in the medical file in the bookcase in the spare bedroom. Let's check it out now. I've got time. But that's in Delin's room at the moment. I can't really go in without asking her. OK. She's gone into town again. I don't know when she's back. She's supposed to be looking after you, not going out cruising the boutiques. It's good of her to come at all, David. Yes, I know. She won't mind you going into her room for something as important as this, though, will she? No, I suppose not. As long as I'm quick. Whereabouts is it? Top shelf, I think. Left-hand side. Next to the huge Toby jug your mother gave us. Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, it's quite tight. Hang on. I'll just put you down for a moment. Need both hands. I've got to get the jug out first. Don't want to break that. It wouldn't be a great loss if you did. You know you've never liked it. There we go. Oh, there's something inside it. Oh, really? What? What's inside it? Uh... Nothing. Nothing. Have you got that article? I'm afraid it's all written in German, but the contact numbers are plain enough. There's a page... Are you all right? Ye yes, I've got it. You're, you're breaking up, David. I'll, I'll look through this and, and call you back oh, later. I thought it was quite a good signal for a change. I'll call you back tonight. We'll discuss it then. Well, OK, if, if you prefer. Yeah, I'll speak to you later. Right. Bye. Bye. So, what's in the Toby jug? We'll return to Cornwall at the end of the magazine to find out. But first, let's find out about Oak Apple Day. 
Every year on the last weekend in May, the Commandery in Worcester celebrates Oak Apple Day, which brings back to life a traditional celebration telling the tale of Charles II's flight after the Battle of Worcester in 1651. The spectacular Great Hall is festooned with garlands of oak leaves and its gardens filled with Morris dancing, garden games and living history exhibits. The Commandery is one of the few venues in the UK which still celebrate the spring tradition, also known as Restoration Day, commemorating the restoration of the monarchy nine years after the Battle of Worcester. On the run from parliamentarian troops, according to legend, Charles hid in an oak tree, the exact location of which is uncertain. However, he returned to the throne nine years later on his 30th birthday, the 29th of May, 1660, which became celebrated as Oak Apple Day. But Charles's escape would not have been possible and the history of England would have taken a very different turn had it not been for the quick thinking of a certain farmer from Elmley Castle near Pershaw, Barney. The wagoner hitched up his horse and dray on the morning of the 3rd of September 1651 and set out from Elmley Castle to join the Worcester Road at Pershaw. Under cloudless skies, John Moore made his peaceful progress on what seemed an idyllic day to bring his load of hay to market in Worcester. As he neared the city's outlying villages, he heard the first faint sounds of musket shot and cannon fire. Presently, the clash of steel and iron and the shrill cries of men and horses alerted Moore to the realisation that this was no mere skirmish. This was a battle, widespread and in deadly earnest. What had seemed earlier to be little more than romantic rumour had come to pass. Charles Stuart had come to Worcester to reclaim his father's throne. The Elmley Castle villager encountered others along the Pershaw to Worcester Road and paused to exchange news and check the situation ahead of him. But he continued doggedly on. Home was 10 or 12 miles behind him, so his hopes were pinned on being admitted inside the city wall to find shelter along with his merchandise, in the premises of his customer. Hopefully that citizen was not involved with the battle raging around the city. Local tradesmen, more hoped, could pursue their normal business with sensible caution. Worcester was thronged with horses and riders. The city would need the wagoners' hay, whoever won the battle. A man had to be practical. As Moore picked his way downhill towards the city, he learned that the Battle of Worcester was going against the Cavaliers. Cromwell's vastly superior forces, 30,000 in all, had successfully operated a pincer movement around the Royalists, who'd mustered little more than half that number. Unfortunately for Charles, promised reinforcements had failed to arrive, and even the 16,000 men under Charles's command were disunited. The Scots and the English were far from fraternal. Some valiant fighting and flashes of success by individual officers and men could not prevail against such odds indefinitely. In the late afternoon of that warm September day, as Moore approached the Sidbury Gate entrance to the city, close to the commandery, the moment of reckoning had come for Charles Stuart. He was urged to flee while his supporters tried to hold off Cromwell's men. Just as Moore reached the city gate, he all but collided with the escaping king, 
who rushed through the gateway on foot, his horse having been shot from under him. A party of parliamentarians were in hot pursuit only a few hundred yards away. The quick-witted wagoner thrust his cart across the gateway and, according to some reports, upended it and tipped its load into the road. The entrance was blocked and gave the king a few vital moments of respite from his pursuers. Before the hay cart could be dragged aside, the king had regained his balance and was looking swiftly around for his next move. Hopefully, Moore, stumbling through the overturned hay, had the satisfaction of seeing the Sidbury brewer, William Bagnall, thrust forward his own horse for the king to leap into the saddle. Thus began one of the most famous escapes in English history. Charles rode through Friar Street and on into the Corn Market, where his temporary lodgings were situated. The building, which still stands, is called King Charles House, and it houses a pub known as the King Charles II. Charles gathered a few personal items from the house, remounted his horse, and, narrowly evading his pursuers, galloped through St Martin's Gate and out of the city. Nothing remains of the medieval gate, but it stood roughly on the site of the large roundabout on City Walls Road. By Ombersley, Hartlebury and Stourbridge, Charles rode in zigzag fashion across the county before crossing the border into the Black Country. Many stories are told about his narrow escapes, hiding in an oak tree or a chimney breast in various disguises, but it must have been an ignominious flight, overcast with fear and a sense of failure, and the knowledge that many were left behind to pay a heavy price for their devotion to his cause. It's a strange irony that on a day of magnificent endeavour in battle with sacrifices and acts of heroism involving the cream of the Scottish aristocracy and some Englishmen of high rank, it was the quick action of a simple villager which saved Charles Stuart and launched him on the great escape which preserved his life and eventually provided the English throne with one of its most colourful characters. It's good to know that when the king, on his return to England in 1660, was told the tale of Moore's deed, he rewarded the villager with the gift of a farm at Curso, adjoining Elmley Castle, parts of which still remain, including the timbered beams of the farmhouse itself and its ancient floorboards. Elmley Castle continues to celebrate Oak Apple Day up to the present time. And you'll find that legend alongside many others in Kathleen Lawrence Smith's book Tales of Old Worcestershire. Another legend, that of St George and the Dragon, is of course much better known, if rather less credible. St George is a very busy saint. Not only is he our patron, but also the patron of Venice, Genoa, Portugal, Ethiopia, Catalonia, farmers, saddle makers, soldiers, skin diseases, lepers, syphilis, sheep and shepherds. A mixed bag, I think you'll agree. But how many of us know very much about our patron saint? Behind the legend there does stand a real person. Most authorities agree that George was a Greek soldier who served in the Roman army during the reign of Diocletian, around the end of the 3rd century CE. Diocletian wanted to rid his army of Christian influence, and when George refused to give up his faith, he met a martyr's death and was beheaded. But how does a Greek soldier, who never came anywhere near this country, come to be our patron saint? 
The answer lies with Edward III, who in 1348 was looking for a suitable patron saint for his newly founded Order of the Garter. England already had two men who were looked to as patrons, St Edmund the Martyr and Edward the Confessor, but neither seemed appropriate. Edmund had been beaten in battle with the Vikings and Edward was hardly noted for his martial prowess. The obvious choice was George, already the patron saint of soldiers, and soon after he was declared England's patron saint. After Henry V attributed his victory at Agincourt to St George, April 23rd became a great day for civic celebrations. Jousts were held with knights challenging all comers to feats of skill, and the day ended with great feasting and merrymaking. Today, our celebrations are a little more muted, but there are civic processions and pageants and plays on the theme of St George and the Dragon performed in many parts of the country. April the 23rd is also the celebration of Shakespeare's birthday, although in fact we can't be sure as to the exact date. The church registers of Stratford only record his baptism on the 26th of April 1564, but as children would have been baptised within a few days of birth, April the 23rd is as good a date as any other. And there is a certain symmetry in celebrating the birth of our national poet on the same day as our national saint. And if that's not the cue for a sonnet, I don't know what is. Christine. From you have I been absent in the spring, when proud-pied April... Dressed in all his trim, has put a spirit of youth in everything that heavy Saturn laughed and leaped with him. Yet nor the lays of birds, nor the sweet smell of different flowers in odour and in hue, could make me any summer's story tell, or from their proud lap pluck them where they grew. Nor did I wonder at the lily's white, nor praise the deep vermilion in the rose. They were but sweet, but figures of delight, drawn after you, you pattern of all those. Yet seemed it winter still, and you away, as with your shadow, I with these did play. Three hundred Aprils before William Shakespeare thought of that, the thoughts of a completely anonymous poet had also turned to love. Barney. From middle March to April, when the spray begins to spring, the little birds of the air desire in their own tongues to sing, while I live in a longing for the bliss that she may bring, the loveliest living thing. To serve her is a boon. A gracious chance for me was meant. I know from heaven it was sent that from all women my love was lent and left with Alisoon. Fair is her hair and soft enough, her eyes are black, her brow is chaste, her voice is light and laughs with love, slight is her figure, small her waist. Unless she comes or bids me wait To take her as my own true mate I will not live but desperate I'm like to perish soon A gracious chance for me was meant 
I know from heaven it was sent that from all women my love was lent and left with Alisoon. All night long I toss and wake, for thee alone my cheeks grow wan. Lady, it is for thy sweet sake my longing rages on. In all the world the wisest man cannot describe her bounty's span. Her neck is whiter than the swan, the fairest maid in town. A gracious chance for me was meant, I know from heaven it was sent, that from all women my love was lent and left with Alisoon. John Betjeman's thoughts turned to something more innocent. In among the silver birches, winding ways of tarmac wander, and the signs to Bussock Bottom, Tussock Wood and Windy Break, gabled lodges, tile-hung churches, catch the lights of our Lagonda as we drive to Wendy's party, lemon curd and Christmas cake. Rich the makes of motor whirring past the pine plantation, purring. Come up, help me build a large. Short the way your chauffeurs travel, crunching over private gravel, each from out his warm garage. Oh, but Wendy, when the carpet yielded to my indoor pumps, there you stood, your gold hair streaming, handsome in the hall light gleaming. There you looked, and there you led me off into the game of clumps. Then the new Victrola playing, and your funny uncle saying, Choose your partners for a foxtrot. Dance until it's tea o'clock. Come on, young'uns, foot it featly. Was it chance that paired us neatly? I, who loved you so completely? You, who pressed me closely to you, hard against your party frock. Meet me when you've finished eating. So we met, and no one found us. Oh, that dark and furry cupboard, while the rest played hide-and-seek. Holding hands, our two hearts beating in the bedroom silence round us. Holding hands and hardly hearing sudden footstep, thud and shriek. Love that lay too deep for kissing. Where is Wendy? Wendy's missing. Love so pure, it had to end. Love so strong that I was frightened when you gripped my fingers tight and hugging whispered, I'm your friend. Goodbye, Wendy. Send the fairies, pinewood elf and larch tree gnome, spingle-spangled stars a-peeping at the lush lagonda creeping down the winding ways of tarmac to the leaded lights of home. There, among the silver birches, all the bells of all the churches sounded in the bath waste running out into the frosty air. Wendy speeded my undressing. 
Wendy is the sheets caressing. Wendy bending gives a blessing. Holds me as I drift to dreamland. Safe inside my slumberware. John Betjeman's Indoor Games In Bill Bailey's remarkable book of happiness, he writes... In a study by Pennsylvania and Stanford universities, 12 million blogs were analysed for words associated with happiness. Younger bloggers used words like excited and elated, while older writers were relaxed, peaceful, calm. What older people are doing writing blogs when they could be hugging trees and paddleboarding is beyond me. But here is more evidence, if any were needed, that our perception of happiness changes over time. I think of love in a similar way, as running parallel to this change in our views of happiness. The two lines occasionally cross and maybe then diverge, but they are never far apart. And like happiness, love manifests itself in different ways that represent the stages of our lives. There's our love for our parents, our pets, our friends, then romantic love, and finally, companionship. I realise my good fortune to have met someone like my wife. We have now been together for more than 30 years, through all manner of adventures, and despite the usual ups and downs, we've been lucky with the weather. Generally fine, and with some chance of cloud and occasional drizzle, followed by sunny spells. Happy Ever After conjures up a romance where there are no arguments and no tragedies, where you just sit there gazing at each other over a raspberry flan until the end of days. I think about our marriage and our long relationship, and I realise many years ago that we were in uncharted territory. Neither of us has been together with someone for so long. So, rather than the usual caveats you hear about people becoming bored with each other, I see the opposite. Every new day is another step into the unknown, a new adventure. We met many years ago, when we both had big hair. It was the 80s, so this was acceptable. There were no mobiles, we had not joined the internet. It seemed almost impossible to imagine. How on earth did we communicate? How did we get things done? Book holidays or go in washing machine forums? We met while I was living in London and she in Edinburgh and we communicated via regular letters. We lived together on a houseboat for a year and believe me, this is a serious test of any relationship, one that, if you pass, will form an even stronger bond between you. After a few months on the boat, she rightly commented on the squalor, which I, as a single man who had been living alone, had perhaps consciously overlooked. What's wrong with it? I asked indignantly. It's damp, she said. It's not damp, I countered uncertainly. At that moment, she pointed to a large mushroom growing out of one of the doors that I had hitherto chosen to ignore. The mushroom was a turning point a fungal pivot on which turned our future together towards some new, drier accommodation, preferably on land. Love, in all its forms, can be a perennial supplier of happiness. 
Love persists through the tough times and endures through all weathers. It is a single note that sustains, like the sound of a bowed double bass resonating deeply below all the other show-offy sounds. But I do not believe that love is a passive state of mind, a settled condition of drowsy, low-risk contentment. For happiness to work, you need to lace it with a bit of spice, a bit of mischief. This characterises our marriage. There's often a lot of banter, some sarcasm, and a general healthy spark to our daily discourse. As I said in my show, Limboland, contentment is knowing that you're right. Happiness is knowing that someone else is wrong. Dorothy Parker sees love and happiness as even more dynamic. Oh, life is a glorious cycle of song, a medley of extemporanea, and love is a thing that can never go wrong. And I am Maria of Romania. Easter is all about death and resurrection, illustrated at its most intense in the form of the Passion Play. As a dramatic production, the Passion Play is thought to have grown from the medieval church's practice of setting the Easter story to music, sung by various performers taking on the different roles. By the late 14th century, the Frankfurt Passion Play in Germany featured a stage with action and dialogue. Probably the best-known passion play these days takes place every ten years in Oberammergau in Bavaria, where it was started as a mark of gratitude for the sparing of that village from plague in 1634. Well, on Good Friday this year, Worcester is at last staging its first passion play, an open-air performance complete with Roman soldiers and baying crowds fully staged in Cathedral Square and reenacting the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. I say at last because, as you may remember, the production was all set to go ahead in 2020, just as the coronavirus hit the world. Two years on, rehearsals are once more underway, and John Plush went down to find out more. He asked the director, Tim Crow, how faithful is this production to the story we all know? Well, it's pretty faithful. Um, obviously, when you dramatise, you have to change a bit. Um, and so there's some additional lines that don't occur in scripture, of course. Um, and uh, there are some times when you have to um, adjust so it doesn't sound too, the language doesn't sound too formal or archaic. But there's a lot of scripture quoted in the text, uh, so people will hear many of the familiar lines that either Jesus, were, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross or in the upper room or at various times even in his ministry. People of Jerusalem, as an act of graciousness to the people, on this feast of Passover, I, Caesar's governor in Judea, Allow one prisoner to be set free. It was to have been Barabbas. 
Barabbas deserves to die, but it could instead be this new prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth, the healer. Who do you want me to release? Was there much competition for the key roles? Uh, no. <laughs> Since I only had about four men come to the original auditions, um, the answer is no. But um, we've managed to cover them well. How many do you have in the cast? <laughs> I think we're over 60. <laughs> um, or certainly will be when we've plugged one or two little gaps because there are um, two or three disciples extra who we need to complete the team. Uh, they may not necessarily need to deliver lines, but they, um, in order to have a, a, a team of 12, we do need a few extras. <laughs> From where do you recruit these people? Well, we um, put a message out through churches mainly, um, saying we were holding some auditions back at latter part of last year. That didn't produce enough men in particular. It did produce plenty of women because it's a male-dominated caste uh, as it was a male-dominated society in those days. Um, and so since then, um, I've sent emails around people I've uh, used in plays at the Swan Theatre in the past or uh, various people I know and said, would you be interested? And uh, got others to do the same. And... Uh, you know, we've got some very, very strong performers at the centre of the cast, as well as some volunteers who've not done anything before. Jesus of Nazareth, you are to be taken to a hill outside the city walls to a place known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. There, for the crime of treason against Caesar, you will be nailed to a cross and crucified until you are dead. Centurion. So we're erecting crucifixes in Worcester High Street amongst the shops and cafes. Is that an anomaly too far? Um, well, to actually do something that is, in our terms, really very barbaric, right in the centre of a, uh, a modern city, um, is anomalous in some respects, of course. Um, but uh, I think it's a, a graphic depiction of what took place and will grab people's attention for that reason. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there are things about it that will be quite arresting in terms of attention and surprising as well. How, how does the performance of a, a passion play benefit the city of Worcester, do you think? Well, that's a very interesting one. I mean... As a Christian, I pray that the um, the impact of who Jesus was would actually come across through the production, and that people, if they're Christians, will be uh, find their faith uh, strengthened, encouraged uh, uh, by by witnessing this in such a dramatic form. Um, for those who aren't Christians, uh, I pray that they will think about the fundamental questions of who Jesus was and what was that all about, you know, um, and what it signifies. So I hope the message that is at the heart of the Christian message actually is something that uh, impacts people who perhaps consider themselves unbelievers. Ollie Ward is playing Jesus, 
and I asked him what's it like to be following in the footsteps of so many great actors who have taken this role in the past. Yes, yes, thank you for reminding me. Um, yeah, very intimidating. I mean, the role is intimidating enough as it is. You're supposed to be playing the son of God, who is God and man, and how do you do that? Um, let alone the fantastic renditions of the character and portrayals that have happened before. I guess I'm, I'm hoping and I'm confident that there is some part of the role that I can bring to life that will be a little bit unique and just trying to find the bits that inspire me, speak to me, um, stand out to me and kind of concentrate on them really and not, not try not to think too much about it. Um, otherwise the fear just takes over. <laughs> this is a story with which you're very familiar. How does it feel to be bringing such a familiar story to life? Mm, yeah, um, I mean, it's, it really is a privilege. Um, it's a privilege. It is a story that means a lot to me. Um, and Jesus is a is a character and a person that means a lot to me, um, and so thinking about bringing this story to the stage is is really quite something. And one one of the things I've enjoyed, I think, the most about researching the character a little bit, at least learn the lines, thinking through it, is the things that I've learnt about Jesus and the things that have stood out again from the biblical story when they're told in a slightly different way. Um, so it is it's a real privilege to be part of it, yeah. It's a very responsible job bringing uh, Jesus of Nazareth to life like this. Does this responsibility weigh heavy on your shoulders? Yeah, knowing how much the story means to so many other people, I recognise that responsibility. Um, but the, the benefit for me is that I can pray about it. And so I'm, I'm regularly asking God, would you, would you speak through this? Would you speak to people? Would they see something that speaks to them and is special for them in it? So that... that partly um, makes me feel it's okay. <laughs> Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. To see the play this Easter, you don't need a ticket. The event is completely free of charge. But if you want to sit down, bring your own chair and just turn up at Cathedral Square on Good Friday, that's the 15th of April, at half past ten in the morning, for 90 minutes of living history. But have you ever wondered how Easter got its name? As early as the 8th century, the Venerable Bede, author of the Ecclesiastical History of the English People, records that Easter is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word Eastra, the name of a spring goddess whose feast was celebrated during April. It may seem strange that the most important Christian celebration should take its name from a pagan goddess. But as Christianity became the dominant faith in the Roman Empire, it very often took over pagan festivals and Christianized them, the most prominent example being Christmas. The New Testament gives us no clue whatsoever as to the date of Jesus' birth, so the church decided to appropriate the midwinter festival of Saturnalia. Probably one reason was the obvious symbolism of Jesus, the light of the world, being born at the darkest time of the year. And perhaps more pragmatically, it was chosen because people weren't prepared to give up their midwinter celebrations. Unlike the birth of Jesus, the New Testament is clear about the date of his death and resurrection. 
According to the Gospels, it took place at the beginning of the Jewish Beast of Passover, when people celebrated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt around 1350 BCE. From very early on, the date of Passover was set from the appearance of the full moon in the Jewish month of Nisan, which equates to March-April. To keep Easter in line with Passover, the Church decided in the 4th century that Easter Day should fall on the first Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox on the 21st of March. So Easter can be as early as the 22nd of March and as late as the 25th of April. This year it falls on Sunday the 17th of April and Passover on Friday the 15th. The retail trade, however, takes no notice of that and those symbols of Easter, the hot cross bun and the Easter egg, are often on the shelves immediately Christmas is over. It has been said that the hot cross bun originates in this country at least from St Albans, where in 1361 Brother Thomas Rodcliffe, a monk of St Albans Abbey, developed a similar recipe to the modern bun called an Alban bun and distributed them to the poor on Good Friday. However, there's also a suggestion that Syrian Christians decorated cakes with crosses at Easter as early as the 6th century. The sale of hot cross buns was banned under Queen Elizabeth as they were thought to be rather close to Roman Catholic practice. The first definite record of hot cross buns comes from a London street cry. Good Friday comes this month, the old woman runs with one or two a penny hot cross buns, which appeared in print in 1733. The egg has also been associated with Easter from the earliest times, as it is seen as a symbol of resurrection. Though apparently still and lifeless, it contains new life within it, and the cracking open of the egg becomes a symbol of Christ breaking out of the tomb. According to many sources, the Christian custom of Easter eggs was adopted from Persian traditions by early Christian communities in Mesopotamia, who stained them with red colouring to remind them of the blood of Christ shed at his crucifixion. Gradually, the designs painted on the eggs became more and more elaborate. The most beautiful being the Fabergé Easter eggs created for the Russian royal family at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. Now the humble chicken's egg has been replaced by elaborate chocolate creations, and I wonder how many people are aware of their original meaning. So, by all means, enjoy your hot cross buns and your chocolate Easter egg. But don't forget their special meaning for Christians throughout the world. But why has someone stolen the Penwith egg? Our story continues as Susan makes an alarming discovery. You went into my room? I needed to get something from the medical file, I'm sorry. It's your house. And I had to move the Toby jug. Uh-huh. And I found it. Hmm. What were you thinking, Endelin? The legend. 
Go on. Of the egg. I've been spending quite some time at the museum, reading up about it. I found some of those really old, waxy manuscripts from the 1600s that talk about it. Merrin's so knowledgeable, Susan. I, I mean, Professor Polkeris. He helped me read them. The Penwith Curse, some of them call it. Yes, that's very interesting, Andellin. But the egg? Why did you steal the egg? I didn't steal it. It's our property, remember? Well, yes, but... I did it for you. For me? How does any of this help me? You know the tale. As soon as Susan Penwith got rid of Morwen Morgan, our family and anyone associated with us started suffering. Not just illness, but the whole farm and everything and everybody around us. It all started to go wrong. Yes, but that's just a legend, Dal. Is it? Last week's power cut affected only this house and the lodge. The phone signal's fine everywhere else except here at Penwith. Your car spends most of its life at the garage being fixed. I live nearly 300 miles away, but I feel it too. The perpetual spinster. And you, Susan, Susan Penwith's namesake, you've not been well for years with some barely identified illness. I had to do something to make my sister well again. It had to be a chance worth taking. I see. No, I don't. I, I mean, how does it help? According to those old papers, if Morwen Morgan is freed from her captivity, her healing powers will be freed with her and maybe get everything back on track. Captivity? In the egg. You don't believe that. Susan Penwith did. She hated Morwen so much that she couldn't risk anyone breaking the egg and letting her out again, so she decided to hide it and live with the consequences. The better of two evils. Merrin says that to lift the curse, the Penwith egg must be broken apart on an exact centenary of its creation, at exactly seven o'clock in the morning of the seventh day of the seventh month of a seventh year. Endelin, that's nonsense. How can this be a seventh year? That was all hundreds of years ago. What year is this? OK. 2007. The witch's fight was in 1607. It'll be the fourth centenary on the 7th of July. That's this Saturday. David's coming back in the afternoon. I've spoken to him, Susan. Explained. He's catching an overnight flight to be here in time. In time for what? Seven o'clock on Saturday morning. We're going up Penwith Hill, all of us, and we're going to let Morwen out of her egg. Oh, Indelin, don't joke about it. You know that flat stone right at the top? Yes, of course. We used to stand on it when we were kids, didn't we, and play King of the Castle. Merrin says it's an altar, a place of sacrifice and of rebirth, where Susan Penwith incarcerated Morwen Morgan exactly 400 years ago and where, on Saturday, we are going to set Morwen free. Pardon me, David Freer, isn't it? Professor Polkeris, please excuse my appearance. I just got off the plane from Holland. Been travelling all night, could do with a shave. I didn't see you on the platform. I only just made it, I have to admit. I've been staying with my daughter in Exeter, but I didn't sleep well last night. I, uh, I felt I needed to get back straight away for some reason. I'm still rather unsettled after the theft, I suppose. Yes, of course. 
Have the police got any clues yet? Oh, no, no. They keep all that pretty close to their chest, you know. They don't tell me much. <laughs> well, I don't suppose we'll hear anything for months. The museum's open again, though. Oh, yes, yes. We, we only shut for a day or two. Pity the infamous egg won't be on show. Well, yes and no. Yes and no? Well, between you and me, Mr Freer, we still have it. The egg? But it was stolen by a... Uh, yeah. The egg that was on display, Mr Freer, was only a replica. I had it made when I took over as curator. Why? Well, eggs are notoriously fragile, Mr Freer. <laughs> How it survived 400 years, I do not know. Of course. I see. And the original? It's in my safe, in the museum basement. Away from fidgety children, if you understand me. Absolutely. Uh, Professor... I think there's something I should let you know. Del, I can't do it. I can't go any further. Susan, just a few more steps. Come on, we've only got a couple of minutes. I can't. Del, you go on. I'll stay here. I can't leave you here on your own. I'll be fine. Someone's got to go up there. You do it. But if you're sure. Yes, go. All right. Go! Wish me luck. Go! Susan! Susan! David! And Dellen said you'd get here. <sighs> yeah, sorry. We had to call in at the museum. Professor! Mrs. Freer, where's Endellen? Miss Penwith? She's gone up the hill to the altar stone. She's got the wrong egg, Susan. What do you mean? I have the egg here. It has to be this one that she breaks. I don't understand. We must get the real egg up there before seven. It's only a minute, too. Merrin, you go. I'll stay with Susan. Right. And Ellen! And Ellen! So, which egg was destroyed? All I know is that as soon as the shell broke on that altar stone, I felt my condition begin to improve. Instantly, I felt energy returning. Energy I hadn't had for 20 or 30 years. I didn't need the drugs trial. I was pronounced fit and well after just three months. And it wasn't just my health. Our luck changed too. The car stopped breaking down. Even the mobile phone signal got stronger. No more power cuts. And the town began to prosper as well. We had a decent harvest. The first for years and tourists started to come which pleased Merrin and Endelin, now Mrs. Polkeras, greatly. Folk wanted to see the famous pen with egg, you see, or at least a replica of it. Well, I believe it's a replica. I believe it is. In The Pen With Egg by John Stanbury, Susan was played by Jane Lush and David by Michael Dyer. Val Harrison played the part of Endelin and Martin Bourne, Professor Polkeris. The policeman and the newsreader were played by Mark Devlin. The Penwith Egg was recorded in our studio here in Wilds Lane and was directed by John Plush. 
And that concludes Look Here for this month. Thanks to David and Sylvia Day for copying and to Carol Hartle for administration. So, with best wishes for a happy Easter, it's goodbye from Christine. Goodbye. Barney. Goodbye. Evelyn. Goodbye. And from me, Stephen. Goodbye. Goodbye.